0: If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is The Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur. Here's your host, Chi Odogu.
1: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, Go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast at www.odogwu.com. And without further ado, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I have a phenomenal guest on the line today. I'm talking to John Asher. John is the co founder and CEO of Asher Strategies. It's a high-level sales advisory services company that advises startups and Fortune 500 companies on their sales and their sales um, processes. Prior to starting Asher Strategies, John worked as a captain of a nuclear submarine, as well as co-founded an engineering services company that grew 42% on a competitive annual growth rate for 14 consecutive years. These days, in addition to leading Asher Strategies, he's a foremost keynote speaker, thought leader, and advisor to several companies. Some of the companies he advises include the private equity division of Goldman Sachs and Indian River Advisors, as well as several other Fortune 500 companies in the United States, Canada, China and in many other countries around the globe. So, I'm pleased to have John on the show today to tell us a little bit about himself, his background, his business, his experiences, as well as his new book, Close Deals Faster. So, John, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Great. So, John, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. How did you become a sales master, so to speak? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, my my uh, first job was, uh, my first career was in the Navy, and I was a captain of two nuclear subs, and then I went to the Pentagon for five years, where I was a program manager of a large Navy program, and you've got three jobs. One, you're the program manager. Two, you're the buyer, so you put out RFPs, and companies bid on them, and you pick one to, to build your program. Mm-hmm. But then three, you're totally 100% a salesperson. You've got to mm. keep your program sold. You've got to justify your program. You're in competition with all the other program managers from all services. You've got to build relationships within the Navy and the Department of Defense. And you've got to go over the hill and build relationships with the um, staffers on the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. So you're totally a salesperson also. That's yeah. where I first learned to sell in the Pentagon. I know it sounds funny, but
1: that's
2: yeah. <laughs> where I first got it.
1: Yeah, because you wouldn't actually expect for people in the Pentagon to be salespeople and closers. You'd expect them to be thinking of you know high-level military strategy and tactics, and just um doing things that were you know in that um field and that space, so to speak.
2: Exactly, and and there are there's a big operational part of the Navy, Pentagon. Then there's a whole acquisition part of the Navy and every service, really, where they're, where they're in charge of buying new equipment, upgrading old equipment, and that sort of thing. Mm. That's that's where I was at my last job.
1: Interesting, interesting. So when you transitioned from working in the Pentagon into the engineering services company, did you found that company, or were you hired in to, to lead the sales team?
2: Actually, you know, I'm an engineer and based on my experience in the pentagon i built a lot of relationships so the day i retired two other navy engineers and i um, started an engineering company i mean frankly just selling back to our friends in the navy okay and it was it was during the reagan build-up years so uh, i mean money was everywhere for defense wow and so it was really pretty easy and you know, so we sold to the Navy, the Army, Air Force. It was easy to branch out to selling to the big aerospace and defense contractors, mm-hmm. Lockheed Martin Boeing, that sort of thing
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so we, we we grew it really fast and then they uh, we got up to about one hundred and sixty five million, and a big company wanted it, so we kind of rather suddenly sold it
0: mm.
2: And then I retired, and after about two weeks, I failed retirement. <laughs> <laughs> And my wife essentially kicked me out of the house and said, will you please find something to do?
1: <laughs> that is funny. So what did you end up finding to, to occupy your time and to get out of your wife's uh, business?
2: Well, you know, I've, I volunteered to be a uh, an executive coach. And the guy who was really in charge of that program said, you know, uh, you'd be much better off trying to teach people how to sell based on what you did in your career rather than coaching people i don 't think you've got the patience to do that but mm. so so he was exactly right and so based on you know having taught everybody in our company you know about two thousand engineers how to sell over fourteen years we we pretty much had a program on how to do it so we just i just went out and started selling with another another partner selling to the big uh, companies. And so, for example, today, we're we're still the corporate trainers for Lockheed Martin, Mm. having started that 20 years ago.
1: Wow. Interesting. And it's funny, I think I read somewhere that you said everyone can actually learn to sell that you when you go into train companies, you actually try to train as many people because whether they are either client-facing or not, one way or another, they may actually interact with a client or may be presented with a sales opportunity unexpectedly. And if they're not trained, then that's a the lost opportunity.
2: Totally agree. And everybody says it. You know, Charles Swa has been saying it for years. Uh, the late great Zig Ziglar essentially said, you know, no sales, no company. And uh, Dan Pink, in one of his recent books, The Sell is Human, He said, based on his analysis, one in nine of us, professional people in the U.S., has sales in our title. VP of sales, sales director, sales manager, sales rep, and that sort of thing. But he said, you know the way the world works now in an Internet-based global economy, the other eight of the nine of us, we're in sales also. Mm. We're selling ourselves. We're selling our ideas. We're selling to the boss. The boss is selling to us. We're selling to the bank to get more capital. The banks are selling to us to get our business. So we're all in sales.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So as, uh, se- now you mentioned something here and I made a note of it cause I want to find out from you. So you said it's different between being a coach and then being a trainer and teacher of sales. Could you break that down for us?
2: So, uh, to give you a good example, um, we, we have, we have three things we really do as a company. We, assess people for aptitude for sales, mm-hmm. see how much talent they've got to be in sales, and then help them learn to stretch. We do sales training. And we do sales and marketing advisory services, which usually means help people improve their sales and marketing uh, processes. Mm. And we also do sales coaching. But the right spot for me is to train salespeople and help them with their, improve their processes. And we got three senior women and their their main job in the company is sales coaching. Okay. That's their sweet spot. That's what they love to do. I don't particularly want to do it, frankly. Mm. You know, I'd much rather come in and beat the skills in the sales people for
0: <laughs>
2: than <laughs> <then> leave. <laughs> and the sales coaches, they, they want to stick with them after that, you know, and coach them for months.
1: Yeah.
2: Which is great. Which is great.
1: Nice. Nice. So, yeah. like... Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the show is actually targeted to people who are either early stage of their career or transitioning into an entrepreneurial business. And with most people that are starting a new entrepreneurial venture, I think the biggest thing before they can actually say they're a business owner or an entrepreneur, so to speak, is to get that their first client. So could you like teach us basically how to land the first few clients so that we can start our businesses Forgetting everything else that people tend to do when they want to start a business Well, let's let's start with the
2: basics on how to start a business just big sure. picture
0: sure
2: having started five of myself There's really three functions for any business Somebody has to get the clients mm-hmm. Somebody has to execute you know once you get a job do the job brilliantly so you can keep on getting more more business and get new clients Hmm. And then somebody has to handle all the back office stuff, admin, contracts, HR, etc. And so the th- there's a real myth that one person can start can start a company and do it well. That's a real exception. Mm. So it's you, when you're starting a company, it's almost oh. always best to have at least two or three people. Okay. You know, Bill Gates didn't start Microsoft by himself, as I'm sure you know. Yes. Right. So that's one fundamental thing. It's always good if you've got a team of two or three people to start because somebody has to do those three functions. And what happens classically? You get a really smart person starts a company, they get a customer, they got to execute now, and somebody also has to review the contract. You know, so you get all bogged down and that stuff, and then the whole thing just doesn't go anywhere.
0: Mm.
2: That's one. That's one kind of principle of starting up. Yeah. Then the the, the second thing, of course, is most of us can figure out how to do contracts and HR and that sort of thing, and most of us can execute. We can you know, do stuff, um, but it's much more difficult. The hard part is getting customers. Yep. And so when you peel back the onion and say, well, what does it take to be a good salesperson, somebody good at business development? There are five factors that explain success and sales. Mm. The first is product knowledge. So it's kind of obvious, I hope, to everybody. If you're going to be good in sales, you better know what you're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I would say half of the global industries now, uh, buyers, especially higher-level buyers, would much rather talk to a uh, subject matter expert with deep technical knowledge than to a salesperson who's got shallow technical knowledge who the buyer knows is just really trying to sell them something. Wow. So product Product knowledge is not only important, but it's actually increasingly important because of the way the world's going so technical. Oh. Second factor is natural talent or personality and how it fits for sale. Third factor is selling skills, you know, learning the skills. Like, like my book, Close Deals Faster, there are essentially eight basic skills that are needed to be good in sales. The fourth factor is motivation. Are they charged up and motivated and want to sell? And then the fifth factor is the sales and marketing processes that the company has to support the salesperson. And so when you see all five of those factors in alignment, that's what, that's when you'll see the great salespeople.
0: Mm.
2: Now of the five factors, uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, product knowledge is almost binary. In other words, if you've got a lot of product knowledge, you have a chance to make a sale if the other four factors are in alignment. Okay. But, but if it's pretty obvious to the buyer that you don't know what you're talking about, there's almost no hope of making a sale.
1: Mm. So you must so become pro- an expert in the product. Uh,
2: exactly, so product knowledge almost binary. You must have it or, you, or it's pretty damn hard to sell something. hmm The second is called sales aptitude or personality and how it fits for sales. And based on a meta-analysis, in other words, a summary of a whole lot of studies, just aptitude accounts for 50% of sales results. The other four factors, the other
1: 50%. Okay. So
2: aptitude is everything, but it's pretty important.
1: Okay, so you just said aptitude is everything. Now, when you talk about personality, are we talking about introvertedness versus extro- extrovertedness? What exactly are we talking about there?
2: So there's, there's eight personality Traits. Okay. So if you you go take a personality test, assessment, or a, one of these detailed ones that gives you a lot of information, mm-hmm. uh, then you'll have a number of personality traits, and they're all independent. I'll give you a couple of examples. Okay. One is one is called intensity, drive, goal orientation. So I hope it's obvious for a salesperson that needs to be high.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. You want people who are just just driven to make quota. Second would be assertiveness. So you want salespeople to have a high degree of assertiveness, so when it is time to propose the close to the buyer, they've got the gumption to do it. They're not timid, in other words. Mm -hmm. So the opposite of of being assertive is, is being too timid. Another one is called social drive. And you'd like to have salespeople that talk to people in the elevators, people that like to go to trade shows, like to make new friends, or build, build relationships. So you get the idea, so you just march down these traits.
0: Yeah.
2: It's pretty, pretty obvious which ones you want to be high for a salesperson, which ones you want to be low,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and which ones you want to be moderate. I'll give you an example of one that you'd like it to be low. You do not want salespeople to be highly detail-oriented. Hmm. And I well, hope it's kind of obvious. You don't want them uh, all bogged down in analysis paralysis. Yeah. You want them to stay with the big picture with the customer. Now, if you have to get down to details, you know, bring in the sales engineer if you
0: need to.
1: Okay. Okay. So, so we hold on a second here, John, because you mentioned earlier that you know you must have thorough product knowledge for you to even be anywhere close to the sale, and now you're saying you don't want to be. Too detailed and too technical are they mutually exclusive because I would think they kind of go hand-in-hand hand. Uh,
2: there they don't go hand-in-hand hand, uh, and, and here's why okay De- uh, the, the, the trait of um, uh, detailed or detail orientation means um, if, I, if my if my detail orientation at low is low it means that to, for me to make a decision, I don't need a lot of data. I'm gonna go by the gut. Yeah. If you if you were highly detail oriented, you would need a lot of data to make a decision.
1: gotcha. Gotcha.
2: So it's all about how much data do you need to make a decision. It yeah. doesn't mean that you can't be technical.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? I'm very technical. I'm an engin- I'm a nuclear engineer. Yeah. But I'm also have a little detail orientation. <laughs>
1: I Maybe that's you. why I never
2: made it as an engineer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, got I got you. I got you. I got you. I got the first stuff. Great. That's, so,
2: that's... so here's one. That, here's one where you wanted to be moderate, and that is the ability to build rapport. So, in other words, the need to serve other people. So you'd like a salesperson to be moderate in that trait. In other words, if you're the buyer and I'm the seller. Uh, I need to be able to build rapport with you so you'll feel comfortable with me. But if I was really high in that trait, I'd want to build rapport all day and never get down to talking business.
0: Mm. <laughs> so
2: that's a trait where you want it to be moderate. Yeah. So eight of the eight trait basic traits about half you want to be high, a couple moderate and a couple low. And we know this from as I say a meta-analysis of uh, literally hundreds of studies by the big sales and HR institutes. What it, what, what the, what's the personality you want to see for success and sales? The third factor is selling skills, and to give you a couple of examples, um, we all know the listening skill is important,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and there's there's kind of three known ways to be the perfect listener. And then in the closing skill, another one of the key skills. There are six closing principles, and almost no sales, none of the salespeople I've ever met know all six, know the data behind them, and know the neuroscience behind them. In other words, why do they work? What's the the neuroscience principle behind that closing principle, and the data behind them? What happens if you you don't, you know, if you screw them up? Fourth factor is all about motivation. Is the sales... You know, at, at that time of life um, are they charged up to make sales? Um, do, do they have two, you know, is it a single mom who has two kids to put through college mm. and we kind of know she's going to be working 16 hours a day to make that happen?
0: Yeah.
2: Or is it somebody who's,
0: you know,
2: a baby boomer on the way kind of out of the workforce who's kind of comfortable with the sales they've got?
0: Mm.
2: You know, they're really not motivated to, to get more sales. Hmm. So motivation is, you know, all over the map, but, but you want somebody who is charged up and self-motivated. Then the fifth factor is sales and marketing processes for the company that supports the salesperson. And I'll give you one classic example. If I was your sales manager and you were a salesperson working with me, <clears throat> and you had five major accounts that you were managing, and you also had as a goal this year to bring in three new accounts, So, you're you're half account manager and half hunter salesperson. Mm -hmm. You got to manage the five you got, and you got to bring in three new ones. Well, if at the end of the year, you were working 100% of the time on managing those accounts, and you never got a chance to lift a finger about getting a new account, whose fault was it?
0: Hmm.
2: It's obviously my fault. Yeah. Because, Because I should have gotten you an admin assistant who could have freed you up from a lot of the detailed support work for those five customers. So that's fifth factor, real important. Does the company have processes to support sales? And of course, another obvious one now is, you know, it used to be that marketing uh, would give salespeople uh, leads and be upset because the salespeople didn't follow up. And then the salespeople, of course, would say, well, these leads aren't worth a
0: damn.
2: Oh. But, na- but now with... You know, marketing automation, predictive analytics, big data, CRM, law, all that sort of thing. Marketing really today is able to deliver qualified leads to salespeople. Yes. And so if the company does that, that's great. If they don't, well, that's not so, not so good. So those are the five factors. Oh. Product knowledge, natural talent based on their personality, selling skills that they've learned, charged up and motivated, and the company has these great processes to support them oh. all that in alignment that's when you'll see the top five percent of the salespeople and right now there's about 25 million salespeople in the u.s
1: wow that's a lot top five got all that that's a lot great so now when we talk about um i know in your new book close deals Faster." i beg your pardon close deals faster you put the subtitle the 15 shortcuts of the asha sales method so could you walk us through those um 15 um shortcuts that you actually use to train um companies around the globe to help them improve their sales
2: so fundamentally most of them are based on
0: the this um yes
1: okay
2: okay yes so fundamentally um Over the last, I'd say, three to five years, there's been an explosion of new studies by neuroscientists all around the world. And now they've been in a a big forum sharing information globally. And in many cases, what they're they're all about is uh, human communications and decision-making. And, of course, the decision-making research they're doing applies directly to buyers and how buyers make decisions. And so many of these studies, Harvard, for example, um, the the buyer is fitted with a what's called a functional MRI machine. Think of a of an MRI helmet. So you're wearing a the buyer's wearing a helmet with a little MRI machine inside. And, and so now we know exactly how where decisions come from, what areas of the brain, mm-hmm. and how we can wake up the buyer's uh, old brain. But to give you uh, just a quick history of this, about 500 million years ago, the reptilian brain came on the scene. It's the fight, flight, fright, appease brain. It controls all of our autonomic functions like breathing and heart rate. Then, uh, 350 million years later, that is 150 million years ago, when the vertebrates came on the scene like like a mammal, Uh, I mean, when the mammals came on the scene like a whale, um, the emotional brain uh, was developed. And it's all about feelings and taking pictures and later comparing new pictures it sees with pattern matching of what's stored in in the emotional part of the brain. Then two to three million years ago, with the advent of primates, uh, including us humans, the rational brain came on the scene. And the uh, rational brain is all about facts, figures, complex thinking, and that sort of thing. Mm. And to, to simplify it, neuroscientists will group the reptilian and the emotional brain, since they're both over 150 million years old. They'll group them together and call them the old brain and call the rational brain because it's only two or three billion years old. they call it the new brain.
1: Yeah.
2: So where are decisions made?
1: And the old brain.
2: So you may have, you're right. So you may have heard something like this. We decide on emotion and justify with logic. Yep. Right? We've all, most of us have heard some version of that statement. When you ask people, what does it mean? People have trouble trying to figure out what it means. So let me give you a real simple example for your listeners. Your company and two other companies are competing for business with a medium-sized company. And all three companies have, uh, you know, they're in the startup mode, but still they've got some pretty good experience, good service, good quality, reasonable prices. So in the buyer's mind, all three companies are kind of tied for first. So which one does the buyer choose? Well, we all kind of know, Based on emotion, the buyer chooses the salesperson they like the best, the one that's built, built the best rapport, the one they have the best feeling about. Now, the other side of this is, <clears throat> the rational part is, your company and one other company, two other companies are bidding for an opportunity. Your company and one other are tied for first in the buyer's mind, great experience, service, quality, reasonable prices. And the third company is really kind of an average company. So, even though the buyer might like the salesperson from the average company the best, feel the best about them, have built the best rapport with them, the buyer is not going to choose them because they don't have the logic to justify the emotional decision. Mm. That's a very simple example to explain what, that, what it means to say we decide on emotion and justify it. Yeah. yeah. Now, with that background, we know from these functional MRI studies, these MRI helmets, uh, where all kind of tactics are tried on buyers and we can see what parts of the brain light up. We know there are six main stimuli that will wake up the buyer's old brain. So if you're a salesperson and you're dealing with a buyer for the first time and you do not wake up the buyer's old brain with any of those six stimuli, closing rates are pretty much zero. We now know about those six stimuli, and there's also about 40 cognitive biases, uh, which means a tendency or a bias or a shortcut or a rule of thumb. Um, that impacts sales as well. So now when you watch the elite salespeople have got all five factors, understand these six stimuli and the 40 heuristics or cognitive biases, now we're talking about the top 2% of the salespeople. Who titled my book and close deal, <laughs> close deals faster,
0: yeah,
2: they know how to wake up the buyer's old brain with a six stimuli and they know how to use these cognitive biases that forms the kind of the underlying basis for the fifteen shortcut
0: okay
1: hmm. and is there a role of storytelling in the um framework So the sixth
2: bias I mean the sixth stimuli yeah. Is called um, customer stories. Okay. And so you've I'm sure you've heard this statement that the best salespeople are the best storytellers.
1: Yes, yes. And storytelling so, yeah. has been on the rise lately, so that's why I ask.
2: Yes. So it's actually the six of the, of the, of the six stimuli to wake up the buyer's old brain.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: One of the best. And we now know, um, you know, from an excitement, engagement, uh, emotional standpoint, telling a story um, will go right to the buyer's old brain. And I'll give you an example. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we started working for a mechanical contractor in the area, D.C. area. Walt, the sales manager, told me that sales have been stagnant for about three years. So we started by giving all 21 salespeople an aptitude assessment to see who was high and moderate and low for natural talent for sale. And since all of the salespeople came up through the company, in other words, they weren't hired as a salesperson. They were just a customer service rep, a field technician, or a sheet metal bender. Then there was a pretty much a bell curve. A few had a high talent for sales, a few had low, and most were moderate. So over the next nine months, we helped Walt restructure the sales force. So in the end, nine people had a high aptitude for sales. Seven people had a a high moderate aptitude for sales. And they actually had five less salespeople. The results were sales went up by 30%. They had five less salespeople. And since costs went way down, gross margins went up by
0: 70%.
2: So now, as the buyer is listening to that, your old brain pretty soon feels like it's in the story. Yeah. And at the end of the story, the virus' old brain's going, wow, I wonder if I can get those same results. Whoa. We now Whoa. know from these latest Harvard functional MRI uh, studies that there is an architecture, the perfect architecture for a story. And as I just told you that story about Walt, I followed that perfect architecture. Mm hmm. So yes, to answer to your question. That was a long-winded answer to your question.
0: But
1: <laughs> <laughs> so now, going down this path, you know, you train lots of big companies, and I also mentioned that you're an advisor to Goldman Sachs Private Equity as well as um, Indiana Advisors, I believe. So In, Indian River, yeah, Indian, Indian River, and uh, also head, Headwaters. Headwaters, exactly. So when you work with these three big, um, savvy financial companies, um, what are some of the things you train them on? Do you train the bankers or the deal makers in terms of how to do deals? Or do you help them with their portfolio companies to, to help drive up growth so that they can get, you know, bigger valuations and exit the companies properly? And, um, so
2: yeah, really three th- three things. One is, as you suggested, train all of their senior BD people on on these five factors. And then, secondly, when they're about to buy a company, most of these financial companies are very good at um, evaluating operations, evaluating uh, finance, and they're not so hot at evaluating sales and marketing. Mm. Our other role is to take an acquisition candidate that they've got and go uh, into the company for a couple of days and assess all 15 of their sales and marketing processes. Okay. And just, just give a red, you know, a stoplight chart: red, yellow, green. And so if we go back to Headwaters and say, you know, almost all of these processes are red, well then Headwaters is not going to buy that company. Mm-hmm. If they're all green, then at least that's a check. If they're mainly yellow, they'll say, well, can you guys help us fix this? And we'll usually say yes. Yeah. And they say, well, how long will it take if we say two years? Well, they're not going to buy it either because they want to, as you know, they want to flip it in three to five years.
0: Typically. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then, of course, the third area we get involved is once they bought the company, going in and training the salespeople in the company, in their in their portfolio company. Okay. Hmm. Those are three areas where
1: we get involved. Nice, nice. I love it. So, John, as we start to wind down the show, I want to ask you a couple wrapping up questions because we've delved a lot into the principles of the book and your um, background. But now, looking forward, and especially for the listeners of the show that are still trying to figure out this entrepreneurial journey, so. Looking back on your career, what were some of the toughest, toughest calls you've had to make in your business and um, professional life?
2: Well, you know, before I really learned about the aptitude Assessments, um, I, I really did hire some knuckleheads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so once I, once I read, you know, uh, the book Good to Great, and which is all about get the right people in the right seat on the bus based on natural talent, mm-hmm. and then started doing that. Life got a lot easier. And when you listen to some of these great HR, uh, you know gurus who've been around for a long time, um, they have they have these mantras for HR and hiring people. I'll give you a couple of them. One is hire slowly and fire quickly. And when you think about it, that's kind of obvious advice, right? Take your time to get the right person,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and then if it don't don't work out. Then you know, cut it cut it fast. And and human nature is to do the opposite. So we hire quick. Most companies hire quickly to fill a slot, and then if it doesn't work out, they hope things are going to get better.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Another uh, HR guru. His his overall a mantra is spend more time hiring and therefore much less time managing.
0: Hmm.
2: So in other words, if you get the right person on the right seat on the bus who's perfectly suited for that role, they'll love the role because their strengths are needed for that role. Yeah, And they'll be happy and the people around will be happy and the boss will be happy and, so once I figured that out, must be thirty years ago, that made a huge difference. So get the right people on the right seat on the bus based on t- natural talent that that's one of the that that made a huge difference in in my life hmm. you know as an entrepreneur
0: yeah
1: and for people that are considering a career in sales, I know we've talked a lot about the principles of sales old brain new brain but um what would you suggest they start doing to um start learning the basics of just how to even prepare themselves for a career and sales because i know career and sales mean you probably need to be on the road all the time probably need to be you know prospecting a great deal and um trying to close sales based on your prospecting schedule so what can someone that's Either fed up with what you're doing now and thinking, okay, maybe I might have the natural aptitude for sales, but I've never done it before. What can I start doing to prepare myself to get into the sales game?
2: Uh, well, without patting myself on the back too much, you know, if you, if you look at my new, newest book, Close Deals Faster, that contains all of the uh, skills you need to be successful. And there's a discount code in the book. To take a sales aptitude assessment, okay, which will tell will tell you are you best suited to be a hunter, a farmer, a sales manager, customer support, or or is sales just not the right spot for you?
0: Because
2: oh. okay. again, to start a company, you've got three main functions, right? Yeah, somebody's got to bring in the business, sales. Somebody's got to execute, <laughs> and somebody's got to handle all that other stuff, all the admin, you know, the HR contracts. And so the 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 dream is start a company where those three people are all perfectly suited for that for that seat yeah. that they're on. Then you got a real chance for success.
1: Nice. And my final question for the day before I let you go is looking back on your career thus far, is there anything if you could go back in time to change something, is there anything you think you'd want to go back and change?
2: I've had three. I've had such great careers, wow! <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, all, I've had three major careers. All of them have just been terrific, and all of them were, were you know were right for the time in life where where I was. You know, if you're if you're in the Navy, you, you, you got to be a young guy to be in the Navy. Mm-hmm. You, you got to be willing to take risks, you know, and that that sort of stuff. So, what would I change? Gosh. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, you can you can you can talk about all the mistakes I've made, but
1: Okay, so let's pretty... okay, let's reframe it. Let's talk about the mistakes yeah. and and then let's talk about, you know, navigating the career and transitioning from role to role to role. How would you advise someone to think about that going forward because you've already had three careers and chances are in this lifetime each and every one of us will have more than one career. What we start out with after coming out of college is probably not going to be where we end up. So Talk about your mistakes and then talk about, you know, navigating the transitionary stages in life that will move you from one career to the next.
2: Well, you know, the great thing about mistakes is uh, you learn. Um, So the the late great Zig Ziglar used to say, um, I either earn, mean close the deal, or learn, you know, why I didn't get the deal. And then, you know, change whatever I need to change to get the next fail. So uh, most people who are very successful actually fail a lot, but they don't, they don't view it as I failed. They view it as, okay, I tried that. and It didn't work. Well, why not? And then, you know, try again. I forget. Remember Thomas Edison, how many different uh, element combinations he used to get the light bulb to work. I for it's like what, eleven 1, hundred times he tried? Yeah,
1: yeah over a thousand. Cr-
2: incredible. Yeah, incredible, incredible number. So don't think of mistakes as as you failed. Think about it as okay, I learned. And of course you gotta have that attitude to learn mm-hmm. and then move on. Right? Move on. And then as you um as you think about uh transitioning, I think it's all about learning. Um, you know, for my whole career, I really have—I really do read a book a week. Yeah. And for me, it's either a sales book, a business book, or a health, nutrition, and fitness book. Those are kind of my three areas. I don't read much for pleasure. Okay. I just read to learn. And so I think that gives you the basis for figuring out where you're going to go next just by continuous reading and learning.
1: Oh. Interesting. And would you say you've had any mentors that have guided you outside of your books?
2: Well, I can give you um yeah, I've had I've had some great mentors, and I'll give you one book that I read. I think it's the best business book ever. It's short. And it it's it's a story, so it's like a two-hour read. And it's called The Go Giver. Hmm. And The subtitle is the Five Laws of Stratospheric Success. So, and that means for us individual. Mm -hmm. And I read it must be 20 years ago, and about the time I was starting the sales advisory services company.
0: Yeah,
2: and that kind of that changed my thinking. That was that's that's I I think that's the best business book I've ever read. As I said, it's short, two-hour read, reads like a story, so very easy to read and extremely well-written, and and, the, and just lifetime lessons from it.
0: Hmm. Cool.
1: I'll link to yeah. that in the show notes. Well, John, it's, we've reached almost the top of the hour since we started talking. You know, it feels like it's just been five minutes. <laughs>
2: yeah, it went by fast, didn't it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I really want to thank you for uh, coming to share your story, your words of wisdom, and of course um, the knowledge and learnings you've Shared in the book, so please tell us before you go. Where can we find the book? Close deals faster, and how can people reach you if they want to connect with you?
2: Well, you can buy it on Amazon. In fact, it was published. Uh, the published date was um, October twenty-fourth, and it sold out on Amazon in fifteen minutes. Fifteen wow. minutes. Wow, <laughs> so that was pretty impressive. That's hard. Now I don't know. <laughs> you know, maybe they only had three books. You know, I don't know.
1: <laughs> You'll be <being> modest. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, so that's that's where you can get the book and of course go to the website if you want www.asherstrategies.com Okay. And you can also find that aptitude assessment I was talking about on the website as well, but but in the book there's a big discount
1: for it. Okay. Yeah, I think I see the aptitude assessments on the uh, home page of the website here and I'll link right. to everything you just shared in the show notes. So John, I really want to Thank you for coming on the show to share your words of wisdom. It's really been a pleasure connecting with you to do this podcast.
2: Thank you. And, and uh, by your reputation, I appreciate all the giving back you're doing.
1: Um, uh, it's, a ple- it's a pleasure. I'm glad to help. I'm glad to help. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the show today. If you love what you hear on today's episode of the podcast, Go to iTunes and leave a review and a comment. It helps other great listeners like yourself find the show. And of course, you can always find more episodes of the Bulletproof Entrepreneur podcast at www.odogwu.com.